So I have to say, I'm delighted that you're here, but I'm a little intimidated to be interviewing one of the greatest interviewers of all time. So if you want to give me tips along the way, feel free. Okay. Well, if I if I feel like you phrased a question um, incorrectly or could have done something more searing and probing and insightful, I'll be sure to let you know, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Ryan, president of the University of Virginia, and I'd like to welcome all of you to the premiere of our second season of Inside UVA. This podcast is a chance for me to speak with some of the amazing people that are part of the university community, which includes our alumni, and to learn more about what they do and who they are. My hope is that listeners will ultimately have a better understanding of UVA and a deeper appreciation of the remarkably talented and dedicated people who make up the UVA community. Today's guest truly needs no introduction, but per tradition, here goes. She is a journalist who, among other assignments, has been co-host of the Today Show, anchored the CBS Evening News, and was a correspondent for 60 Minutes. She's a producer, a pathbreaker, an author, a performer, a guest star in episodes of Glee, Sesame Street, Austin Powers, and Murphy Brown. Like myself, she was an American Studies major in college. She is a parent, wife, entrepreneur, genuine icon, and someone I am truly honored to call a friend, a daughter of the University of Virginia, the inimitable Katie Couric. Katie, wow. thanks so much for being here. <laughs> that is some intro, Jim. Thank you. You read it just like I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's talk American studies. How did you pick that major? You know, I think I've always been a pretty good writer. I've always been... I've always gravitated towards words and language, and I love history, and I love reading. I, I, I think because my dad was a journalist, he really encouraged us to be good writers and good communicators. And I think I thought that American studies would give me a broad liberal arts background from which I could you know, go into journalism. I wrote for the Cavalier Daily, During the summers, I was at UVA in Washington, D.C. I worked at different radio stations in their news departments. And so I just thought it would give me a a broad background because I think early on I wanted to go into some kind of journalism. Right. So let's take a step back. You grew up in Virginia. Was it always UVA or were you looking at other schools? Well, my sisters both went to Smith. And I think everyone kind of expected me to go to Smith. But I was sort of a little bit, I wouldn't say a goof off, but let's just say I got by on my charisma and charm, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, anyway, but I applied to Smith and I mean, I didn't even get waitlisted. I got rejected and a thin envelope came in the mail and uh, I was heartbroken. And so UVA was not my first choice, but... I'm so glad I went to UVA. It was a really good place for me. I think I got a really well-rounded education. I loved it. I lived on the lawn. I was an RA. I embraced it so, you know, completely. And I think Smith would not have been necessarily the right place for me. And that's what I tell kids, Jim. They usually end up where they should as long as they really take advantage of the opportunity any college or university presents them with. You know, school colleges are what you make of them, right? And it was also in-state, and it was incredibly, you know, economical. 
So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying you've had a, you had a lifelong dream to go only to UVA, and that's the only school you considered, and lo and behold, you were here. So that, that's, that, that is great to hear. <laughs> you mentioned living on the lawn. You didn't just live on the lawn. You were the senior resident of the lawn, which is a pretty big deal. Um, any highlights from your time? Oh, my God, that was so fun, living on the lawn, except for walking down the you know, the path in your bathrobe with wet hair, with your bucket of shampoo and soap and stuff in the in, in the middle of winter with icicles forming on your hair. It was just really fun. We had a great group of people. It was so idyllic, you know, to be able to have an American Studies seminar on the lawn, sitting on blankets. And, and there was something just so lovely and special and historic and building a fire and, you know, it just, it was, it was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience. Yeah, there's no place quite like it. So you mentioned journalism, which I, which obviously your career, and it sounds like you, you have been thinking about it for quite a while. And was that your dad's influence? I mean, did you come to college knowing that that's what you wanted to do? I mean, I thought it was something along those lines. I was interested in advertising too. And I remember going up to New York and I interviewed with all these places and they all told me to go to business school. Well, I wasn't super jazzed about that. And uh, it was pouring rain. It was March. Mascara was running down my face. I had a cold. My umbrella was going upside down. I couldn't get a cab. It was a frigging nightmare. And I remember doing an interview, like my third or fourth interview, and this woman said that I should go to business school. I was feeling so defeated. I did what every prospective employee should do in a job interview. I started crying. And she said, dear, maybe you should consider getting a job closer to your parents. (laughs) So advertising wasn't for me, obviously. And um, so I ended up going into journalism, which I did want to do because, as I mentioned, I worked every summer, encouraged by my dad as a summer intern at WAVA, which was all news radio in Washington. Then I worked at WASH in the news department. And then I worked at WMAL, WRQX. So I think I picked a career, Jim, that so fit with my skill set and my personality that that's why I was ultimately successful. That and some, you know, luck and good timing. Right. So what would you say was your big break? I think it was when Tim Russert, uh, the late Tim Russert, Tim saw me covering Marion Barry when I was a local news reporter in Washington. And I think he thought I had a lot of pluck and moxie and, uh, you know, was sort of persistent. And he gave me a job. He offered me a job as the junior Pentagon correspondent working under Fred Francis. So that opened the door to the network news world. Right. Uh, And you've held a lot of incredible jobs. Do you have a favorite among them? Well, I think probably I was most suited to the Today Show um, because I think it satisfied my interest in sort of a whole panoply of subjects. You know, I'm interested in pop culture, but I'm also, you know, for all my quote unquote perkiness, I'm actually a pretty serious person and I care deeply about big issues. 
And so I think doing the Today Show was such a smorgasbord of topics. Well, it's like it's it's like the American Studies version of journalism. Yeah, it is. And I also think, you know, when I did that job, uh, social media didn't exist. There were no iPhones. You know, I did it from 1991 to 2006. And when people wanted to know what was going on in the world, they turned on their radio, they turned on their television, or they picked up the newspaper on their front steps. And so I think that we were able to almost establish sort of be such an important part of the news cycle set the tone for the day what people were thinking about looking at and there weren't you know there wasn't this paradox of choice where there's just so many outlets and and I feel like that's when the show was really really important um and it's still important but just it's its importance has been diluted by so many other options right So as I mentioned earlier, um, you are widely and rightly known as one of the best interviewers of all time. I'm curious from your own perspective, do you have a favorite interview that um, you remember? And do you have, let's call it a least favorite interview? What's the best and worst in your mind? I mean, that is so hard. That's kind of like asking someone what is the best meal they've ever had. But Having said that, I think one of the interviews I'm proudest of was the interview I did with Sarah Palin in 2008, because I think it revealed a lot about who she was, about whether she was really ready to be vice president, whether she actually had an understanding of the issue, her ability to be a critical thinker, and to express sort of public policy in a meaningful way. And so I really prepared for that interview and and I didn't go trying to embarrass her or, uh, you know, show what she didn't know. But I thought it was really important to go through, you know, to to ask her some, some questions that really required accumulated knowledge and an ability to think deeply about some of these things. And I think she failed. And because of that, I think it gave people pause about her ability to be a heartbeat away from the presidency. So I, I was very proud of that. And we I prepared for days for that interview. I think the worst interview, I, I did an interview with John and Elizabeth Edwards that was sort of tone deaf. Um, It was about Elizabeth and her cancer had come back and it was kind of about her decision to continue campaigning for for her husband. And of course, this predated all the scandal. And I think I asked her about, you know, her choices in a way that was weirdly insensitive or came off that way. And and I I I regret it because I had lost my husband to cancer. I was somebody who understood what it was like to experience it. And and I just feel like like it, it didn't reflect who I was or how I felt about about right. uh, you know, her situation or the or the way their family was was suffering and and uh, dealing with this, something I was all too familiar with. Right. 
So your latest venture is Katie Couric Media. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, the, the why and the what and um, how it's going? Sure. Well, you know, as you mentioned, I have done a lot of big jobs. I've been very fortunate. I did the Today Show for 15 years. I was anchor of the CBS Evening News. And after that, I had I did a talk show for two years. And then I worked at Yahoo because I saw this digital revolution happening before my eyes. So after doing all those things, I thought, gosh, I don't necessarily want to go back to a network. It's hard to go back. And other people, you know, were coming through the ranks and doing a great job. And so I thought, I still want to work. I love what I do. I'm still endlessly curious. So why not given the fact that there's so much disintermediation, you don't need the network structure right. to right. communicate with an audience. You can do it on podcasts, you can do it on social media, you can do it on YouTube, you can do it on streaming networks. And so as a result, I thought, I'm just going to do my own thing. My husband, John, has a, has a background in finance and was really kind of semi-retiring. And so he said, I'll help you. So now we have about 40 employees. We do a six day a week newsletter called Wake Up Call and people can sign up by going to katiekirk.com. We have a really vibrant website. We work with purpose-driven brands to focus on things like health and wellness, cancer prevention, environmental sustainability, and, you know, and it's going really, really well. We have a very engaged audience. I think because I got into the business when I did, people look to me as someone they can trust, someone who is not going to be unprepared for an interview, someone who's not going to give things that are not factually correct. And so as a result, um, you know, I'm able to interview Neil Katyal, a constitutional scholar, about what what it means to to go into Mar-a-Lago and and what are the consequences of former President Trump's legal challenges. Or I can talk to my friend Lindsay Adario, is the incredible photojournalist who's covered so many war zones, and she's in Ukraine right now. She has an exhibition coming up in New York. So I just sent her like six questions about her work and the most interesting story she's ever covered and what she tries to capture in her photographs. And I'll have that in my newsletter. And I'm developing some documentaries. So I'm able to continue doing what I love. And I am the boss of me, as our kids used to say. Right. Well, it seems like it's it's hearkening back to a certain extent to the Today Show, where you could cover a huge range of topics, but you get to decide which topics. Yeah. I mean, I just can do anything. It's so fun. Right, right. right. So let's shift gears for just a second. Um, I've really admired your philanthropic work, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the causes that you've championed that are near and dear to your heart and and how you decided to use your platform really to bring attention to causes that you believe in, including um, cancer detection, prevention, and treatment. Well, you know, I think most people who become intensely committed to a cause do so from personal experience. 
I remember early in my career, I was asked to MC, you know, practically every event for every charity you could right. think of front and all incredibly important, worthy causes. But when my when my husband Jay died in 1998, when he was just 42, diagnosed in 1997, and after nine months died of advanced colon cancer, I mean, I it just it was devastating. And our daughters were six and two, and it just made me realize that there was a huge vacuum of knowledge about this disease, about the fact that it was the number two cancer killer of men and women combined, the fact that it was highly preventable with proper screening or even with an, a better understanding of the symptoms because often when you have symptoms, it's advanced. And that's, that's one of the, the scary things about this disease and about so many cancers actually. So I think when this happened, it just became obvious that I would be focused on educating people and raising funds. I was so frustrated that the therapy that Jay was on had been used since the 1950s. And, you know, I thought this, this is impossible. We have to make more progress in coming up with better treatments and diagnostic tools and prevention strategies for colon cancer. So I did my colonoscopy on the Today Show just to kind of destigmatize and demystify the procedure. And then from there, I focused on raising a lot of money. I started the National Colorectal Cancer Research Alliance where we got people, experts from about every aspect of the disease. And then of course, when Emily died, uh, my sister, Emily, who became a state senator and was running for lieutenant governor of Virginia, and they're part of the Clinical Cancer Center at UVA is named after her. I'm just enormously proud of her and was so heartbroken along with my family and so many of her constituents uh, when she died of pancreatic cancer when she was 54 and thought, gosh, all cancers need more more funding. You know, I, I knew that only one in 10 promising research proposals was funded by the NIH. And I said, there are a lot of great ideas out there that just can't get funding. And we have to, to, to take up the slack. So with eight other sort of type A women like Sherry Lansing, who was a very well-known Hollywood executive, and Lisa Paulson, who was in charge of the EIF, which is the philanthropic arm of Hollywood, and some other women in marketing and all kinds of backgrounds, we started Stand Up to Cancer. And we thought cancer research shouldn't be so siloed. It should be more collaborative and less competitive. And we need to really help fund these dream teams of scientists who are all working on the same things and they need to get together and we've raised over $700 million. I think our research has contributed to something like nine new FDA-approved drugs. Um, and uh, so, so that has been my main focus for the last 20-plus years. But I'm also doing other things. I'm very interested in ALS research. I'm executive producing a documentary about a remarkable young man and his wife, Sandra, who met during the Obama campaign and have really spearheaded three important pieces of legislation on Capitol Hill using their political acumen 
and their ability to be sort of uh, community organizers from working on the Obama campaign to changing, changing a lot of people's lives with ALS. And, you know, it reminds me of that famous Margaret Mead quote, never doubt the power of a few committed citizens to change the world. Indeed, that's the only thing that ever has, something along those lines. But I think it just shows you can really, you know, accomplish something if you set out to do it and are sort of relentless. Okay, so last question. If you were interviewing Katie Couric for a UVA podcast. What question would you ask her that you haven't already been asked? Um, how do you feel about the steps the university has taken to mitigate some of the less attractive chapters of its history? But I'll ask you that question. <laughs> what do you You're think? Right, and has the university and the community writ large done enough? So taking the first part, I feel like UVA is a different place today than it was when I went to Grounds in 1989 to be a first-year law student. At that time, there was very little conversation about um, the less attractive chapters of UVA's history. Um, and, you know, it was not a conversation about the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was mostly a conversation about the good. Um, and I think that today uh, there is a much greater recognition about UVA's full history and, you know, a pretty robust conversation. And I think that's a healthy thing. And I sometimes think that people go to either extreme. They just want to talk about the attractive parts or they just want to talk about the ugly parts. And I think where we're trying to get is to be comfortable recognizing that history is as messy as the current reality. You can't pick one strand and say that that defines an era. And just being able to have an open conversation uh, about the history is, I think, really important. Um, in terms of whether we've done enough, I think we've done a fair bit, but there's always more to do. I mean, we have done more in terms of telling the full story of UVA, whether it's putting up the memorial to enslaved laborers, which is, I think, a, a fantastic memorial, um, to putting up historical markers that tell the full story of UVA up to the present, so markers about the admission of women to UVA, markers about the coat and tie rebellion, um, portraits of uh, faculty like Rita Dove, um, all in an effort to make it clear that history at UVA didn't stop in 1950. It continued, and some of the most important chapters actually happened after 1950, all of which I think is part and parcel of being a university uh, founded by Jefferson, who famously said, we're here, we're unafraid to follow truth wherever it may lead. And I think we absolutely ought to apply that maxim to the history of the university. And we're getting there. Um, and it's a, it, it is an honor to be a part of that. I'm developing a documentary series that I hope comes to fruition, which is really kind of unvarnished history and the ways Germany has done with the Holocaust and the way Rwanda has done with its civil war to kind of 
help people face face some of the things. And I, I really think it it impedes progress when you mythologize history. And it also impedes being empathetic to groups that were oppressed and who weren't the people writing the history. So um, I think that we could learn a lot from those other countries. Brian Stevenson is a person I admire so much. You and me both. And he and I have talked a lot about that. I did, you know, a National Geographic series, and one of them was on Confederate statues and iconography. And that's why I was in Charlottesville covering the Unite the Right rally and really focused on sort of the statue of Robert E. Lee in the middle of, of the town square. And, um, you know, he, he talks about appreciating history and not, not to be ashamed or embarrassed, but just to, to have a deeper understanding. Um, and I remember I interviewed Gary Gallagher in Charlottesville, the history professor. And I remember him saying to me, gone with the wind has done more to miseducate people about the civil war than any history professor could. You know, I think we have these pop cultural references that shape our perspective in a way, and um, oftentimes they're really wrong. I agree, I agree. I also think that sometimes we fail to recognize and acknowledge progress. So, you know, the idea that it's no better in 2022 than it was in 1960, uh, which is false. And I think what it does is it um, dishonors those who worked so hard to improve conditions for people who were oppressed. And not recognizing the improvements, I think, does a disservice to those who came before. So I think some of it, I mean, in some respects, you know, the, the starting point is humility. Humility about the present, humility about our own roles in the present, um, and recognition both that those in the past didn't always meet the aspirations that they had for themselves, just like we don't. Um, but at the same time, humility that we're not the first to recognize a problem and try to work on it. Um, and there are those who came before us that deserve our credit and gratitude for their work. I think it's so important, but increasingly difficult to have nuanced conversations that will allow people to recognize failures, but also appreciate circumstances. Right. Well, Katie, I will officially end the podcast here. I I really want to thank you. Um, It's been a total delight to spend time with you. Um, And I really appreciate your taking the time. Absolutely, it was fun. And I, I think you've got a future in podcasting, Jim. Inside UVA is a production of WTJU 91.1 FM and the Office of the President at the University of Virginia. Inside UVA is produced by Kaylee Obermeyer, Mary Garner McGee, Brooke Whitehurst, and Matt Weber. We also want to thank the Katie Couric and her team, especially Adriana Fazio and Sam Phelan. And as always, we are so grateful for the work of Maria Jones and McGregor McCants. Our music is turning to you from Blue Dot Sessions. 
Listen and subscribe to Inside UVA and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about the life of the university.